Father, we're desperate for you this morning, even if we don't realize it. We want to come into this time with a heart posture that's humble, that's teachable. God, as we look at this text and we look at the story, there's clear indications that we need to pay attention to that are hard to understand often. And so would you help us? God, would you lead us? Would you guide us, give us eyes to see what we need to see, ears to hear what we need to hear, hearts to be transformed into your son? We ask that you would do it. Pray in your name. Amen. I came across an article this week, and uh, it was talking about the things we don't do for our physical health. It had like the top five worst things you can do for your body, for your physical health. And you know, kind of the same things continue to rise at the top of the list of all these types of lists. Like it's like smoking is really harmful for your health, it hurts your lungs, it hurts your heart. Uh, some of the other things is like eating junk food or eating lots of sugar consistently is actually really, really bad for your body, bad for your physical health. Um, not getting enough sleep is really terrible for your health. If you're, if you're not getting a, a consistent pattern of enough sleep, it actually does something to your body very badly. Um, one of the new ones that's probably somewhat new in the last decade, I don't know if you guys have heard this yet, but like really, really unhealthy for you to sit for a really long time. You guys heard this kind of sitting is the new smoking because now we're in cubicles and we're sitting in front of a screen all day long or we're at home binging Netflix and we're sitting in. One study showed that uh, if you sit for over 11 hours at once, you have a 40% increased rate of dying from somebody that's sitting only four hours a day. So the same one was kind of sneaky to me. I mean, it kind of hurt and stuff like that, but it's like, man, this is really damaging for your physical health. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, uh, in the context of where we're going in the text this morning, what is damaging for your spiritual health? We had a top five of the worst things that you could do for your spiritual health. What would be on that list? You might have uh, your own based on your own story and the things you struggle with. You go, man, this thing is really bad for me. I need to stay away from this thing. But what we're going to see in our text this morning is there's one thing. There's one thing that is really beneath all of these other things that might be symptoms of this one area that we need to stay away from and be aware of in our lives to grow spiritually. There's an author named C.S. Lewis. He wrote tons of books, and one of the books he wrote uh, that I got a hold of in college was called Mere Christianity. I don't know if you've read this book before. It was super foundational for me at the time. And in chapter eight of Mere Christianity is maybe one of my favorite chapters in any book I've ever read. And the title of chapter eight in Mere Christianity is The Great Sin the name of the title, and Lewis kind of goes after this idea that there's one sin that goes underneath all these other sins that we need to be aware of. Let me read the beginning of chapter 8 to you this morning. It says this. It says, I, come, I now come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from any other morals. There's one vice in which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. And which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they're guilty themselves. I've heard of people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they're cowards. But I don't think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. 
There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride. Goes on to say, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was pride that led the devil to become the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride isn't often something we talk about as maybe often we need to talk about it. And maybe some of that is because like for me to recognize something in you, I have to recognize it in myself. And so you don't go around calling people out for pride typically. Like, oh, that was really proudful. And oh, well, how do you know that, that that was proudful, right? Like, but this is something we need to understand. This is something we need to attack. And we're going to see. We've been talking about the life of Saul. And he's been kind of on the rise in his power. And now at the end of chapter 11, chapter 12, there's a warning. And then it's going to go like this for Saul's life. And I believe the reason is based in pride. And I agree with Lewis when he says it leads to all other sins. It is the anti-God. And the big idea that we're going to see from our text this morning from these two chapters in the life of Saul is this. If you're writing it down, if you take anything away, hopefully this will stick in you and through you even as you leave throughout your week. It's this. If you slip into pride, if you slip into pride, which you kind of slip into those things with pride, it's sneaky. It kind of comes behind the surface of your life if you slip into pride you will slide into downfall. If you slip into pride, you will slide into a downfall. Years ago, my wife and I were out in California and uh, we had the opportunity to go to this pastors and counselors kind of workshop for a day. And this group brought in Dr. Dan Allender. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Allender. He's great to listen to. And he was talking about secondhand trauma as a vocation for pastors and for counselors. And what he said at the beginning in his intro, he was talking about, listen, this is so important for you to understand in your role. If you don't understand this in your role, in your vocation, you will be taken out. And he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, listen, if I could shake you. He goes, shaking has like this violent tone to it. But if I could shake you gently to understand what this is, I would shake you. And if you're a part of this community at Redemption Peoria, man, this is something we are going to go to the mat on. If I could shake you gently this morning, it would be the idea that we are not going to be a people of pride. If we're trying to follow Jesus, if we're trying to walk with Jesus, we need to continue to have a posture of humility, and we need one another in this process. We cannot do it on our own. That would lead to pride. So we need one another. We need God's spirit to expose us to this thing that is killing some of us in our Christianity. And that's the issue in the sin of pride. And again, we are in this series called We Want a King as we've been looking at the life of Saul. Uh, we have one more week after this week and we'll start transitioning to look at the life of David. Saul will still be in the story, but we'll focus on David. We'll take 11 weeks in David and then we'll take five weeks in Solomon, the last king that we see in these first three kings of the Old Testament in Israel. And again, what we've seen is that, man, we get introduced to Saul because God's people in 1 Samuel 8, they're going like, we want a king like the other nations, right? We want a king that we can follow, that we can see. They're tired of following God from a distance and having to have faith, and they're going like, we don't like the way he's operating. We want a king 
like the people around us. And so in the midst of that, God's prophet Samuel has a conversation and God says, listen, if they follow an earthly king and a king like the nations, it's not going to go well for them. You need to warn them. If they follow a king and they bow their knee to something or someone other than me who's meant to be their king, who's meant to be their protector, who's meant to be their provider, what's going to happen is this king is going to take and take and take. And you know what? They're going to lose their identity as my people. They're going to lose themselves and it ultimately is not going to go well for them. People don't heed the warning at all. They ignore it. They go, no, 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 we want a king. We want a king like the other nations. And so God in his grace and his mercy says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want to show you it's not going to satisfy you. And you're going to fall flat on your face. So then we get introduced to the character of Saul in chapters 9 and 10. If Saul looks really good from the outside, he's tall, he's handsome, he's rich, he seems like the prime candidate. But in chapters 9 and chapters 10, you see these character flaws showing up over and over again. And the people say, ah, we don't care about that. He looks good. We want him. And even in the midst of his character flaws, God uses Saul as his instrument to rescue people. As God's spirit falls upon Saul and uses him to rescue we saw at the end of chapter 11 where we left off last week that Saul actually gets it right. He trusts the spirit inside of him. He gives credit to God when they have a victory. But as he gains power, here's what we're going to see in 13 and 14. He's going to be like, that's going to be his life. And it's a cautionary tale for us. One, not to follow kings or bow our knee to anything but the king of Jesus, of God. But then two, that we are all like Saul. We can start well, we can still be used by God, but we let pride attach itself to our hearts, we will have a downfall just like Saul did. And what we're gonna see in the text this morning is kind of like if, if we have these symptoms of bad health, right? Like maybe you're fatigued and you're tired and that's a symptom of what's going on in your body. There's these symptoms we get to see in the life of Saul that point us back to his pride and his arrogance. Three things we're gonna see in the text this morning is that pride leads to impatience, pride leads to control, and pride leads to blindness. It leads to impatience, it leads to control, and it leads to blindness. And these kind of slide on top of each other. They build on top of each other. When you're becoming so impatient because of your pride, you know what you start to do? You start to control. You start to reach out. You start to grab. You start to manipulate on your own efforts. And when you do that so much, you know what it does? It starts to lead to your blindness. That's what we're going to see in this life. And in chapter 12, which we're kind of jumping over, it's kind of a hinge chapter. Samuel is basically telling the people, like, as he gets ready to leave, he's putting his character on display. He's saying, listen, have I done everything you've asked me to do? Have I been upright of character? And God's people are like, yes, yes, yes. He goes, because of that, pay attention to this. And he gives them another warning. He's saying, you can follow a king if you follow God. And in chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, he says this just as reference for us because it's going to lead in and bleed into chapters 13 and 14. He says uh, in chapter 12, verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. It's this warning again for the people that they totally ignore. So let's pick up in 
chapter 13. If you uh, have a Bible, I would I really encourage you uh, to have a Bible with you, whether it's uh, in the seats or on your phone. Uh, sometimes we have things on the screen, but we're going through two chapters. It's 75 verses this morning, so we're not going to go line by line because that would just be, we'd be here until 2 o'clock. Um, I'm going to sum up a ton, and then we'll camp in a couple of verses to kind of illustrate what is happening in the life of Saul and what we need to be aware of. So chapter 13 uh, just to be aware, what's going to happen is chapters 13 and 14 are tucked away in this section where the nation of Israel, God's people, start to fight the Philistines, who are one of the major enemies of God's people in the Old Testament. And there's going to be a fight that's going to happen, and then Saul's going to give a vow, and there's going to be more fighting that happens through Saul's son, Jonathan, and then... Saul is going to give a vow in the midst of going after the Philistines. And so it's kind of all compartmentalized in this fighting with the Philistines. And what the text is doing is exposing the character and the attitude of Saul in this midst. And again, pride is slippery. Watch how this shows up. Let's start actually in verse 3 of chapter 13. It says this, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gebeah. And the Philistines heard of this, and Saul blew his trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and it all, uh, also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul of Gilead. Okay, again, we could read this and just glass right over it, but what the narrator is doing is what happened at the end of chapter 11. Saul has a great victory, and what does he do? They say, oh, let's, let's praise Saul, and what does he go? No, 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 Like the Lord gave us this victory today. Now we have this warning in chapter 12. Now what do we see? The first thing that happens is Jonathan, his son, gets introduced to his son. He goes out to the garrison, and he defeats the garrison. He comes back. Saul blows a horn, and everybody says, who got the victory? Saul. And Saul doesn't defer to the Lord. He doesn't go, wait a second, like he does in chapter 11. The Lord gave us this victory today. See how sneaky and slippery that is? He starts to be okay with that. Well, in the midst of that victory that Jonathan has, the Philistines are like, oh, we're going to rumble. Let's do this, right? So if you pick up in verse 5, what happens is they get all their people up and ready, and they're going to go after Israel. They have so many men and horses and chariots that it, it really scares Israel. And they kind of get backed into a corner, if you see, if you continue to read or if you've been reading with us, and they're scared. They're hiding in caves. They're hiding in cisterns, and it says that they're fearful at the end of verse 4. I'm sorry, at the end of uh, verse 7. So let's pick it up in verse 8. So the, Fel the, the Philistines are bearing down on the army in Israel. What is Israel's response? Starting in verse 8, this is what it says. It's talking about Saul. It says, he waited seven days, and at the time appointed Samuel, <clears throat> excuse me, at the time appointed by Samuel, uh, just real quick, we saw this in chapter uh, 10, verse 8, that as Samuel anoints Saul, he says, listen, you're not going to be able to have full power. You need to wait for me seven days if you're going to offer a sacrifice. This is really important. It's foreshadowing this moment that happens right here. Uh, and at the end of verse 8, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out 
excuse me, and Saul went out. I'm sorry, I can't read this morning. I'm going to read from here. What verse are we in? Eight. Thanks, Johnny. And Mila? No, we're not in eight. Thank you. We're in ten. We're in ten. As soon as he had finished the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines were mustering at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and the burnt offering. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done so foolishly, and you have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel forever. So what happens? Again, uh, Saul is waiting. The people are scared. He's supposed to wait for Samuel seven days. Now here's the thing that we need to know about the text. There were two times that they would offer the sacrifice in the midst of this. They would do it in the morning, and then they would do it at twilight. The text doesn't tell us, but I would guess that Saul is waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. He's impatient. He, people are scattering. They're talking. They're like, what's going on? And instead of waiting the full seven days, he starts probably, okay, Samuel's not here. Day seven, it's the morning. He's not here. Let's, let me bring it to me, and I'll offer it myself. Right as he offers it, what happens? Samuel comes walking up, and he's like, Saul, what are you doing? <laughs> what's Saul's posture in his response to Samuel? Right, he starts getting defensive. He starts going, well, like, you weren't here. The people were scattering. I didn't know what to do, so I had to take it upon myself. He starts to kind of have this kind of victim mentality of, like, you weren't here. What else was I supposed to do? And you start to kind of feel sorry for Saul with his language. You kind of go, like, wow, yeah, that's kind of, like, you weren't here, right? You weren't, you weren't here at the right time. But clearly, Saul is being disobedient. And what happens in the midst of your pride is you start becoming impatient, just like Saul. And I don't know if you've dealt with people that have led you that have been impatient, man. It's really hard in the midst of uh, leaders that have been impatient in your life and you're not operating on their timetable and they're frustrated at you. A lot of that has to do with pride. Right? And this word gets thrown around all the time in our culture, even recently, this, this word narcissism, right? And sometimes it fits and sometimes we use it uh, too loosely, I think. Uh, because we all have narcissistic tendencies inside of us because we're all selfish at some level because of sin. But there's some people that have like narcissistic personality disorder. And when they start to let pride creep into their life and they start to lose their sense of who they are if they're a, a follower of Jesus in Christ, they don't have any secure footing in who they are. Mixed with pride, this is what starts to happen. They respond defensively. It's never, ever their fault. I don't know if you've seen this. This is called the narcissistic prayer, but it kind of goes like this. You can throw that slide up. When somebody gets challenged, well, that didn't happen. And if it did, that, that, wasn't, that, big of, that wasn't that bad. And if it was, it's, it's not that big a deal. And if it is, that's not my fault. And if it was, I didn't mean it. And if I did, you deserve it. This is Saul's posture. This is Saul's attitude as he moves forward and he lets pride creep into his soul. This is his posture the rest of the story as we continue on with him. And we see it even here. Samuel comes up and is like, dude, what did you do? You're disobeyed. He goes, no, 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 no. You weren't here 
Um, you are, I had to take matters into my own hands. Clearly, the people were coming against me. What, what did you expect me to do? Saul has let pride creep into his soul, and he becomes impatient. Man, do you ever become impatient? Uh, and some of this stuff, like maybe you're impatient for other reasons other than pride, but I think these are good indicators for us. When I start to feel impatient, like why isn't it happening? It needs to happen right now. I can just start to look and go like, is there pride in my life and my heart? Because I'm challenging God's timing in that moment. I'm going like, I don't like the speed of this. It needs to hurry up. Whether I'm leading myself or I'm leading other people and typically impatience is a characteristic of pride that we need to be aware of. Listen, don't trade God's timing for yours. Don't trade God's timing for yours. Right? You're waiting for God to do something. You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. He doesn't seem to be doing it, and you just grow with impatience instead of growing in trust and faith. And you go, okay, how do I control this? Don't trade God's timing for yours. That's not a good trade. It's not a good trade. What do we see as we continue as pride leads to impatience, as we continue on in the story, right? So, uh, Samuel ends up leaving after this conversation with Saul, and then they get ready to gear up and fight against the Philistines. And we see that Jonathan, in the beginning of chapter 14, what he does is he gets his armor bearing. He's like, hey, we're going to start moving in this direction. But he does it. If you read the text closely, he's trusting God every step of the way. And what the narrator is doing is it's holding up a compare and contrast to how Saul is dealing with this military advance and how Jonathan is dealing with this military advance. Jonathan in trust and humility is going, okay, if we take this next step and the Lord gives us this next step, we'll take the next step. And even in the midst of the way he goes to the next thing, it doesn't make any sense in a military strategy. If you've read the text, like he gives up the element of surprise. He's, um, he's downhill, and so the, the enemy has an advance on him. And he goes, if, if we trust the Lord, he can give us into their hands. And they trust, and God does something through them, and they start this kind of riot in the midst of this, this stuff going on in the camp. The Philistines don't know what's going on, and they start fighting each other. And as that happens, Saul gets wind of it back at his camp. And he goes, okay, this is the time to go. Again, he's not waiting any longer. And so what you see actually in verses 18 and 19 is he says, if you read the story, like, okay, come bring the ark. Because he knows in Deuteronomy chapter 20, this is so sneaky about Saul. He's kind of learning about God. And it sounds like he's doing the right thing, but ultimately we see between the lines of his motives. So he says, bring the ark, because in Deuteronomy chapter 20, you couldn't go into battle without a priestly prayer. So somebody brings the ark, and you see it in the text. They start, and then the next line says, like, the, the commotion got bigger with the Philistines. And so Saul hears this, and he says, take your hand off the ark. This is what he's saying. He's halfway through the prayer, the priestly prayer. We're trying to trust the Lord. We're trying to do it in his timing. And Saul hears, this is our chance. We need to go right now. Take your hand off the ark. We can't wait for this prayer any longer. We need to move. His impatience and his pride spills over into his leadership in that moment. They go and they fight the Philistines and they win that battle. But the narrator is clear in that it's not because of Saul's impatience and putting his foot down to the pedal. If you look down at verse 23, it says, So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the, the, the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. 
So they're still battling. And Saul, what we see in the next verse, in verse 24, if you look down at your Bible page, uh, or, um, chapter 14, it says this. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on his people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, until I am avenged on my enemies. So they finished the first battle, and Saul's like, hey, let's go. we got to keep chasing them. But do you notice what happens in the text? It's real nuanced here. It's real quick. What does Saul say? He goes, okay, we're going to put this oath on. He doesn't hear from the priest. He doesn't hear from Samuel the prophet. He's nowhere to be found. He goes, well, I'll start making oaths that sound religious, and here's what we're going to do. Everybody's going to fast until what? Whose enemies are avenged? My enemies. Right? The language switches again from chapter 11. It's not God's enemies, it's my enemies. And here's what we're going to do. Everybody needs to not eat. And what are the people? The people are exhausted already. First thing we see is that pride leads to impatience. The second is that pride leads to control. This is Saul's grab for control. He wants to make the decisions himself. He doesn't want to wait for a priest. He doesn't want to wait for Samuel the prophet. He wants to take control for himself. And so what we're going to do is we're going to not let anybody eat until my enemies are avenged. Let's continue to read verse 25. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Verse 27, but Jonathan had not heard his father, his father's charge, the people with the oath. So he put the tip of his staff that was in his hand and he dipped it in the honeycomb and he put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed is the man who eats the food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become, the bright, have become bright. I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So Jonathan is away. Remember, he is left with his armor bearer. He comes back. He doesn't hear the oath from Saul, this kind of control grab. And he sees this honey. He's like, wow, this is good. I'm going to eat some. And then all of a sudden, somebody next to him goes, actually, your dad made an oath. Like, you shouldn't eat that. We're supposed to fast until we defeat the Philistines, defeat this enemy. And Jonathan's like, well, I didn't know. And by the way, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> when you're under a leader that is grabbing for control, this is interesting. Watch this. When somebody from the outside comes in and looks at the situation, they go, that doesn't make any sense. Why are you following that? And the people don't see it because they're too close to it. But Jonathan comes from the outside and he goes, hey, actually, this is not good. We would have had way more victory. Like, this oath is shallow. Why are we following it? Pride leads to control. When you have somebody from the outside, that's actually helpful in the midst of figuring that out. So as we continue the story, um, the, the Philistines go out. Right? And verse 31 says they, they struck down the Philistines from that day to Michmash to Aldron. Right? They continue to fight the Philistines. But they're exhausted. As they exhaust themselves, they beat the Philistines. And then they take their cattle and they go like, we need to eat. The day is done. The oath is done. It was for one day until we avenged ourselves. We did that. Now let's eat. 
They start cutting up the cattle, cutting up the sheep, but they're not doing it as God has called them to in the Old Testament. And so the text says, them, and they're eating with the blood, right? They're disobeying. And Saul comes in and is like, why are you eating this way? You shouldn't be eating this way. This is disobeying God's command. He sets up a rock, an altar for them to eat a different way, to follow the command of the Lord. And then we pick it up in verse 36. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And then they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Verse 27, or 37, and Saul inquired of the Lord, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. So his pride leads to impatience, his pride leads to control. What happens is Saul is going like, He's plotting the next day. His troops are exhausted. They go, okay, we got to keep pressing. We got to keep going after these people. What do you guys think about that? Should we keep going after him? And his people are so exhausted. They're like, just do, just do whatever you want. Saul, like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. We don't know what to say. So Saul, that seems to be enough answer for him. Okay, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's keep going. And then the priest steps in and goes, actually, let's wait. Let's stay here and let's listen to the Lord. And what's interesting to me about Saul's response in this moment is pride leads to his control. He just totally kind of ignores the priest. He doesn't sit there and wait. Now, the text can read like, well, maybe he did ask the Lord, but he doesn't wait. He goes, okay, no, priest, that's great. I'm going to ask God right now. God, should we go? I feel like we should go. Should we go? And God doesn't answer. God doesn't say anything to him. And in the midst of his control, he just keeps pressing down on the gas. His people are exhausted. They're like, should we go? I don't, Saul, I don't know what to tell you. You're not going to listen to Do whatever you want to do. Then the priest steps in as the voice of God to help him. And he just goes, well, I'm going to ask him right now. We're not going to wait. I'm just going to ask him now. And then he doesn't hear anything from the Lord. And he begins to get frustrated. This is what happens when we let pride creep into our framework of how we think. Pride leads to control. Do you ever have that problem with control? You're like, listen, I need to make the decisions. I need to be the one in the driver's seat. And for a lot of us, if we've trusted people because of our background and they have failed us, or maybe we've even trusted God and we feel like he's failing us, we go like, I want control. That feels better to me. At least I can be in control. At least I am saying that I'm failing rather than it done to me. And listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, trading God's control for yours is a bad trade. Every time. But again, we get sucked into this, this slippery slope of pride and we go, no, 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 no. I want to be in control. These guys can't get it right. Nobody can get it right. Let me figure it out for myself. And Saul is clearly not trusting the Lord in this. He's not listening to his people. He's not listening to the priest. He's like, no, 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 we're going to go, 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 and the Lord doesn't answer. We need to be aware of that in our own life, in our own journey. We start to feel this control rise up. And now, now control is not always about pride. Sometimes there's good control, but a lot of the times, at least in my own life, when I start to feel this need for control, this need to grab, it's because I'm not trusting God. I'm trusting in my own timeline. I'm trusting in myself versus going like, all right, Lord, what do you want to do? And how do you want to do it? So pride leads to impatience. Pride leads to control. 
As we continue on, the, the, the Lord doesn't answer Saul in that moment. So he goes, okay, there must be sin around here. Let's ask the Lord. Let's cast lots to see what the problem is. They cast lots against Israel and against Saul and his son. And then it falls to Saul and Jonathan. And they go, well, who is it, Jonathan or myself? And they cast lots and it lands on Jonathan. And then we see in verse 43 of chapter 14, this is what it says. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I've tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I'll die. Verse 44, and Saul said, God, do so to me, and more also, that you shall surely die, Jonathan. Verse 45, and the people said to Saul, surely Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head that falls to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, and he did not die. As pride leads to impatience, pride leads to control. The third and last point is that pride leads to blindness. Saul is so caught up in his way, in his oath, it blinds him to what he's about to do to his son. If you read the text again, it's like, okay, we cast lots. Okay, Jonathan, what did you do? Jonathan didn't disobey God, but he did disobey the oath that he was not even aware of. And if you follow earthly kings, you will have to obey the oaths that are not good for you, and you will put yourself in a situation like Jonathan. And he goes, okay, I guess I did it. Maybe I need to die. And Saul wraps it in religious language again, and he goes, okay, I guess you're going to die. I don't know what God's going to do to me, so we have to take you out. We've got to kill you. And again, it sounds right on the surface a little bit. It sounds like, okay, Saul seems to be obeying God. But if you look at it between the lines, again, you're going like, dude, you're totally blind to your pride. You're not understanding that this is your son. He actually didn't do anything to offend God. He did something to offend you. And this is what pride does. It leads to our blindness. As you continue to get impatient with certain things, with certain situations, with certain people, and then you grab for control, and as you grab for control more and more and more, you automatically start to not see things clearly. You start to get blind to the people you're leading. You start to get blind to yourself. You get like that narcissistic prayer, and you go like, it can't be me. It can't be my fault. It's got to be somebody else, him or her or them. And that blindness often leads to destruction in other people. And that's what happens with Saul in this moment. He's going like, well, I guess we're going to have to kill you, Jonathan. And the people step in, and the people go, no, 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 we're not going to do that. That would not be okay. So as we think about this idea of pride and how it sneaks into our souls and how we operate and how we think, even related to blindness, this is kind of the trickiest one, right? Like, we can see when we're impatient. We can see when we're grabbing for control a lot of the times. But, man, we can't see when we're blind. That's why they're called blind spots. Because you can't see them. So the question is, do you have people around you that you trust enough to say, hey, how are you experiencing me today? Like, how did you hear me in that meeting? Was, and, and not leading the witness, hey, was I, was I too rough or was I okay? Oh, you're okay. And don't triangulate. Don't go after people that you know are going to give you the answer you want to hear. Are you honest enough and are you humble enough to go like, how did you hear me today? And when you hear that response of, man, you were kind of, I don't know, you were kind of stern, you kind of dismissive in your language, like, are you going to go, okay, thanks so much for telling me that. How can I change? 
Like, what can I be aware of? If we're proud, which is, again, a sneaky sin, that will block you from hearing that. And the enemy wants to continue to block you from hearing those types of things. But if we're trying to follow Jesus, our only posture is humility. We need people around us. We need each other around us to have those conversations. Those are hard conversations to have. You don't want to hear negative things about yourself. But if you know who you are in Christ, you can hear them. You can go, okay, I'm secure in Christ. I'm hidden in Christ. Not my performance, not that comment, man. And you're going to screw up all the time. This is all of us. We're going to mess up. We're going to make bad decisions. We're going to say things that hurt people. Now, we can double down in humility and go, okay, how can I repent of that? How can I say I'm sorry of that? Or we can build a wall of pride. And we can go, no, 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 that wasn't that bad. They must have heard it incorrectly. Church, we can't be like that. We can't be like that as followers of Jesus. We need to have postures of humility. And so when we start to see impatience creep into our daily lives and our circumstances, when we start to see we're reaching for control, whether it's in our parenting or our workplace or our family place, when we see that we're going like, everything seems to be going my way, and, and you start to become blind, and you're not listening to the feedback of the people closest to you, that's a problem spiritually. So I just encourage you, those that are married, man, this is a great, this is a great question to ask at lunch, right? Like, <laughs> babe, how are you experiencing me? And how have you been hearing me lately? And then having the posture to hear it, not to control, because sometimes you can do it in a controlling way, right? You can ask the question to really gain control of the conversation because you feel bad. Just like Saul, he, he mess, messes up with a burnt offering, he's impatient, and I love what the text says. It says, well, Saul went out to greet Samuel. He doesn't wait. He goes, well, I got to beat this in the punch. I better go talk to you and go like, hey, man, like, let me tell you what happened. It's like, Saul, your pride is ruining, ruining your legacy. And the beauty of the gospel. Sam, man, all of us are going to do this all the time. We're going to be impatient all the time. We're going to try and grab for control all the time. We're going to be blind to things that we don't see all the time. And the beauty of the gospel, right? Just like we were saying, like, don't trade God's timing for your timing if you're impatient. Don't trade God's control and his goodness for your control. And don't trade God's sight for your sight. Trust that he knows. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is there's a great trade that happens. God sends the king. He sends his son to live a perfect life so that when we mess up, which we will do, we get to trade that. We get to bring our impatience to the cross. We get to bring our control to the cross. We get to walk up during our response as we dip that bread in that juice and we go, God, would you show me where I'm blind? And I'm trusting for you. We have a king that's patient with us so we can be patient with others. We have a king that's in control, so we don't have to be in control. And we have a king that cures our blindness and gives us sight. And that's the king we want to follow. We slip back into following all these other kings throughout our week. And then our results are impatience, control, and blindness. And what we're reminding ourselves of this morning is we rehearse the story of God and his resurrection that gives us life that gives us freedom is that we come down here as we take the response and we remind ourselves of who our king is and we go would you change me would you give me a humble heart to listen to the feedback 
the hard feedback? Would you give me a, a humble heart not to be impatient, but to be patient with others? Would you give me a humble heart not to grab for control when I want to grab for control? And we go, you have to do it. Again, we just need to flip back to 1 Kings 11, and we see the antidote to pride. It's dependence. It's humility. It's Saul going, God, it has to be you working in and through me to rescue your people rather than like, oh, I did it myself. We all need help with this this morning. We get to respond, to be reminded. Every, that's why we take communion every single week, to remind ourselves that that's where we anchor ourselves. It's in the cross. So let's pray this morning that we would not slip into pride and slide into a downfall. Father, man, we really, really, really do need you. In the midst of this story, in the midst of our own story, that we would learn what it means to be patient. Father, that we would learn what it means to give you control and that we would learn our blind spots so that we could be healed. Thanks that you do heal us through your son's sacrifice on the cross that trade that we get to trade in all of those things for what you did on the cross is a beautiful reality for us. I pray that we remember it this morning as we respond well. We ask it in your name. Amen.